is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, tech girl, Miriam Joar. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Joar, and today is Monday, April 2nd, 2018. My guest is the wonderful Matteo Doni of techtravelgeeks.com. Hey, Matteo, how are you? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show, Miriam. Yeah, this is lovely. We've been meaning to do this for a while. And I was looking through my list of folks and I was like, ah, I need to get Matteo on. And you were so accommodating. Thank you for doing it so quickly on such short notice. Lovely. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I was up anyway. The cats always need fed at strange hours of the morning or night. That is <laughs> definitely true. So... You know, last week, the podcast was all about the P20 and P20 Pro because they had just been announced. And, uh, you know, I nerded out about it. And it, it and then uh, Steve Litchfield of, of formerly all about Symbian and now all about Windows Phone or whatever the current publication is called. But he also has his mostly he's well known for his podcast. Uh, Steve had me on his podcast, on his show. And we, and we nerded out even more because we're both photography geeks about the um you know about the uh the, the phones have you had a chance to play with them yes i have uh, so i've played around both with the p20 pro and a p20 so thanks to jonathan morris of jmcoms.com uh who visited edinburgh at the weekend uh we went for a photo walk with his p20 pro that he received at the launch event in paris and Everything was extremely impressive, especially when it comes down to monochrome and zoom. Yeah, I mean, it. my brief time with it, I did not get to do a photo walk, sadly. But my, my brief time with it was phenomenal, to say the least. I also found that the, st the, sta the stabilization, which is not optical except for the, the zoom lens, was ridiculously um, good. And uh, those those night shots or low light shots because I wasn't able to shoot it, test it in the dark. But I I mean I did I mean let me rephrase that I was able to test it in the dark, but I wasn't able to test it at night. Um, so you know artificial dark I guess. Um, and I was quite impressed with that performance. And you know there's been a couple of of big publications like Engadget and The Verge and, and probably more that have published their stories about uh, comparing this phone, the, the P20 Pro, to the Pixel 2 XL or Pixel 2 and to the to, to others. And the results are superb. I mean, I'm just blown away. Yes, um, the low light has always been something Huawei have been pushing on their flagship devices, but even on their mid-range ones. Uh, in historically with Huawei, to get a good picture in low light, though, you do need a mini tripod. So their super night modes up to 25 second exposures have always been very punchy, very, very impressive, especially for use on social media. And with the P20 Pro, I've seen 10 second exposures handheld turn out incredible pictures. So they've obviously changed the software and also paired up that 40 megapixel sensor and 20 megapixel sensor to work some real magic there. It's yeah, really, I mean, really exciting. My, yeah, my, I think my belief is that they're constantly using all three sensors 
um, to gather all kinds of extra data that then they can do computational analysis on, depending on whatever mode you're shooting, to get the best possible result. And that's how they're that 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 crazy AI stabilization, um, which it really pays off in low light handheld. Um, but if you notice when you use that mode, unlike other phones, it's not that the shutter is turned on and left on, so to speak. It's more like they're constantly taking very, very quick photos and they're basically doing HDR on them and then they're doing motion and, 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 and you know, uh, stabilization compensation. And, yep. and that's why the end result is so good because the dynamic range ends up being absolutely amazing because of this constant analysis of multiple frames and the HDR processing and then the, stabiliza the stabilization that happens on top of that. I, I agree. So um, my understanding is that they're doing a mix of HDR and phase detection focus. So if your hand is moving just slightly, even with optical image stabilization, uh, the camera is aware of it and then will do right. some very funky stitching as well as color adjustment and white uh, level adjustment to make the picture look as if it's been stabilized, but it's actually a series of pictures that are then com computationally mixed together, which is, is great. That's exactly how to solve the problem of smaller lenses, smaller sensors, and physics. Yeah, and I do believe, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, that Google does the same to a lesser extent on the Pixel 2. So this is not a new technique, it's just that I think Huawei is pushing it really far and um, the results are even more impressive. And, and I think the other thing is, I haven't really been able to confirm this because I'm still waiting for my review unit, which should hopefully be happening, uh, getting here either this week or next. Um, I'm, I want to play with manual modes and see if, if shutter speed in manual mode is actually what I expect it to be based on this low light mode, which is I expect the shutter speed to be emulated by again a series of you know very very short stills so that they can apply um you know a uh, a kind of a fake over or under exposure and they can also do the the stabilization uh if you do set the shutter speed to say one second or two seconds it'd be really interesting to see if they did that there or if they're just doing it the dumb old way of opening the shutter for a long time, which would cause all kinds of problems. Um, I think that also comes down to the modes because uh, Huawei are also very good at including the light painting modes. So the ones where if someone has a sparkler, they can write their name and it picks up that uh, tr light trail or the headlight trails in cars, for example, to make right, those right, right. punchy pictures. So I think they're doing something with an initial image and then overlaying the, the trail from there after com computationally analyzing the, the series of images. Uh, whereas right. with the new handheld mode in the P20, I'm really under the impression that it's more a, a mix of HDR and uh, phase detection of, of the series of images that they're taking at the same time. It's, it's again, the camera in the P20 has so many different modes. They may be different, doing completely different things in different modes as you go through, cycle through them all. Well, that's something we need to test. And I want to do that testing as part of my work because my gut feeling as a 
you know, computer programmer turned tech journalist is that I would want to use this computational stuff all the time on all three sensors, no matter what the mode is, and replicate the feeling of the mode based on what you select. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that, that, that would make sense. the most sense. And then you'd get the, all the benefits all the time. You don't have to worry about it from a from a also from a code based perspective, like a a com- the complexity of the code. It makes a lot more sense because you basically have all the same stuff always happening, and then you just tweak a few parameters to get the end result you want based on the settings the user expects, right? So if you zoom while you zoom, you use you know use the zooming tricks and and then you know you apply that to the to the to the sensors because I believe it uses you know the fact that it has three sensors means it can measure parallax better, which adds basically uh, an edge for autofocus. Um, you know, it has four ways to autofocus now. It has laser, of course. It has, uh, you know, uh, phase detect, contrast, contrast detect, and and parallax. It can use parallax for autofocus, which, as we know, um, the Pixel does as well. With the, and the Galaxy S uh, eight and S seven prior to that with the dual pixel technology, right? Yes. So, I- I'm very keen to see what what exactly is going on. And even though I'm not sure they're sending me a P20 regular, I'd be interested in seeing if the P20 regular is any different uh, because of this different color sensor and the lack of, of a third sensor from the zoom lens, since it doesn't have one. Well, it'll be interesting to see because nobody really focused too much on the P20 right now so far. So. No, and uh, because of both the price, but I'd say also the the size. Some people don't want a six inch phone, despite it being eighteen to nine aspect ratio. Right. Um, because of price, it will sell like hotcakes in markets where, uh, where the the network subsidise the cost of the handset over a couple of years contract. So in the UK, for example, uh, the from what I understand, the pre orders are very. Uh, doing very well because not only are you having very good subsidized prices over the contract, uh, they're also throwing in this Bose headphone offer. So you get a wow. pair of Bose QC2 uh, Bluetooth noise cancelling headphones, which feature the Google Assistant as well uh, once you've pre-ordered your, your Huawei P20 or P20 Pro. Wow, that's really great. Indeed. So the P20, I think, will be a big seller. And for most people, the camera on that, even if it's not as it's good as the P20, Pro, it's going oh, to be yeah. amazing. So it, Absolutely. expect your non-techy, non-geeky friends to suddenly have better <laughs> pictures if they do get a Huawei P20. Well, that's what we want, right? We want, we, I mean, you know, re- let's rewind a little bit, you know, and, and I want to talk about the Galaxy S9, which is why I bring this up, because... You know, to me, the Galaxy S9 has a f- wonderful camera, but it's it's very incremental, right? It, very much like the whole Galaxy S9 is a very incremental device. I mean, it's it it runs with the best in terms of camera performance, but um, you know, the best is really the Pixel 2 and Pixel 2 XL, and and you know, maybe you know, some people like Steve Litchfield will argue that the 808 PureView and the 1020. Um, you know, from Nokia back in the day, the the they they brought to the table some 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 something some performance levels that still haven't been achieved even by the Pixel Two in some conditions. 
But of course, overwhelmingly, modern phones are so much faster and better that at photography that, uh, you know, a lot of these points are kind of moot, in my opinion. So I'm kind of hoping that the P20 and the P20 Pro are the beginning of, a you know, this year's measurable um, improvement and performance in terms of imaging, right? And I think we're seeing that in the limited tests that you, you were able to do and uh, others have done and hopefully I'll be doing. But right now, the verdict is still a little bit out um, in, in some other areas and low light and zoom and of course monochrome uh, to see if it really lives up to it. I mean, to me, for example, the Mate 10 Pro, which I have, and, and you've played extensively with the View 10. Uh, I know this from all your photos. Um, <laughs> and, you know, are take really good photos, but they, they don't, you know, they're up there in the, in the best of the bunch, particularly the Mate 10 Pro, since it's optically stabilized, whereas the View 10 isn't. But I think they're still not quite up to what the Pixel 2 and Pixel 2 XL can produce, whereas I think the P20 is clearly, you know, basically cranking it up to 11 and giving us, you know, for 2018, the first glimpse at the next leap not leap but at least step forward in imaging right yes i i definitely agree the huawei have been really good at reigniting the competition between all the big tech companies when it comes to photography um i i started getting very interested in huawei uh, mainly after the launch of the honor 6 plus back in 2015 oh i remember that phone very few people remember that phone yeah and that was the first real dual camera phone that uh, we saw in the market available to consumers before the iphone 7 in fact yes this was or 7 plus i should say this was an amazing device for the time, and Huawei were really pushing their camera chops at the time. So it's been interesting to see how they've progressed, moving from the telephoto lens and another sensor to having a full monochrome and RGB sensor. They've really been pushing the R&D and setting this, in a way, a standard for others to follow. Uh, and they've put a lot of resources behind it, obviously, which is good. This this is really good for competition because there will be Samsung executives sitting there at the moment thinking, okay, Huawei have one-upped us on cameras again. We really need to make sure that the Note 9 or whatever it will be called or the Samsung Galaxy S10 or whatever it will be called. Probably the S10. I think it's too late for the Note 9. I think that one's in the can. Yes, it's probably in the can, but they can still do the software in improvements. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Because Google recently open-sourced uh, some of the, the camera chops of the Pixel 2 XL, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right, yes. So it will be an interesting time to see how that software release and those understandings of how to do digital photography affect existing devices with software updates, if they ever get them, and how the that will then influence the capability of the hardware in the next generation. Because as we've been speaking about, uh, it's all about computationally improving and doing post-processing on the images. Uh, the chipsets we have at the moment with the S9 and S9 Plus with the Snapdragon 845 are already pretty good. Huawei are doing their own thing with their homegrown Kirin chipsets with the 970 with yeah, an integrated yeah, yeah. NPU. What's the next generation of Qualcomm or maybe even NVIDIA chipsets going to look like? 
For sure, but I think Qualcomm has a better chance. They have a lot of experience with ISPs that support multiple sensors. And their approach to AI, or I shouldn't say AI, to machine learning, or I shouldn't say machine learning, to um, you know processing the kind of algorithms that are used by AI and machine learning um, is to not have dedicated hardware and leverage the GPU, CPU, and DSP, which I actually think as a developer who has worked extensively in signal processing is the way to go. Because you can hard code a chip to do the kind of things the NPU is doing on the Kirin 970. Of course you can, but it's it limits your options of that growing in the future and its ability to do multiple things. You know, basically, you are limited in the set of problems you can solve at the AI and machine learning level by the, the limits of the hardware. Whereas with um, Qualcomm's approach, you can... Th- you can scale, you know, you can scale very, very high and very, very low if you want by, you know, leveraging multiple chips that already exist. So I'm not convinced that the NPU approach is the right approach. At the same time, it's clearly working and they're doing, they're definitely exploiting what they have in a, in a very smart way. Indeed. And uh, obviously it's too early to say, but there's also another another chipset manufacturer who are starting to make noises about cameras, that's MediaTek. So it's a bit early to see the mids to low range devices start to have these capabilities, but I'm sure that within the next 18 months, we'll start seeing uh, the next Helio P series chipset from MediaTek start to have those capabilities tied with MediaTek's reference software, which will allow handset manufacturers maybe in the 50 to $100 price range start to have some of the same portraits or nighttime photography capabilities. So Absolutely. And you know, you bring something up that I think is very important that I think is already happening in the Huawei Honor universe. The 7X really impressed me in terms of imaging performance for its price. And it's, I felt it inherited a lot of the chops from, you know, the, the Mate 10 pro and and the p10 prior to it um but scale down in price and in in, in in hardware um but i think the, the you can tell that the the heart the software brain as as it were is still there right yes definitely I, i'm still using an honor 7x on a daily basis i'm actually uh, streaming uh, speaking to you on this podcast whilst tethering to one uh it's <laughs> a, wonderful it's, it's a fantastic device as you said, they scale down on the hardware, but the software, the way it handles the pictures is very, very similar. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, we're seeing that too with Qualcomm, you know, bringing down some of the software tricks of the 800 series down to the 600 series on the ISP. Um, you know, some phones are running 600 at, at pretty amazing uh, at imaging. I mean, they're not pixel two grade but you know that's 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 a role to be left for the flagships at this point still but i think that you know at least the original pixel levels of performance are going to be attainable in the mid-range uh in in this in this next year and and i think you know definitely qualcomm and and huawei are ready for it and as you said mediatek let's see what happens i have not yet been super impressed by at least the implementation in if of devices using MediaTek not really living up to what I would expect in terms of imaging, but I think it's an implementation issue more than a MediaTek issue, if you know what I'm saying. In, indeed. So MediaTek as a 
goods uh, provider of chipsets also gives reference software out. And a lot of the OEMs and ODMs who make devices with MediaTek chipsets just copy and paste. They don't add anything on top. Uh, often it's AOSP with MediaTek stuff. That's it. So brands right. like Elephone, Yule Phone, uh, all those sometimes comedy named brands really do no justice to the potential their handsets have. And sadly, the ROM communities seem to be dying down, so they won't be able to take advantage of that and build better stuff on top of it. Um, it's, it's interesting, but ultimately, this is the trickle-down effect of flagship features and combinations of hardware and software to the middle, mids and low range uh, of devices. Though... I hear there's a bit of a, an issue in the US at the moment in getting a lot of these Chinese devices. <laughs> <laughs> well, mostly Huawei and Honor uh, by association. Um, yeah, I've talked about this extensively in the podcast. It's a sad state of affairs, which is in, in great part the result of the regime we have in power right now. And um, it's going to be tough for Huawei to be to stay relevant in the next few years until things change um, politically. And I think they will eventually, and maybe they have a chance then. I think that hopefully they can weather the storm. Um, but it's very disappointing as a U.S. customer to see a device like the P20, P20 Pro, know that I'll be getting one because I'm, I'm a reporter, I'm a, I'm a journalist, and I can, as media, I will get one to play with. And then know that I can't recommend it to any of my friends unless they have deep pockets and are willing to, um, you know, not have a warranty or support, right? Uh, yeah. Which for a device that costs close to $1,000, in the case of the P20 Pro, is, uh, is, a tough, is a tough sell unless you're a phone enthusiast at this point. So, yeah, it's definitely a problem. And, and I'm kind of hoping that the Pixel 3 or whatever it's called when it's finally released as a flagship model, um, bring some of the innovations we've seen in the P20 Pro to the uh, to to the Google phone, as it were, but not necessarily with the same number of sensors and lenses. I'm thinking more more computational wizardry. I want to say that I'd like to be on the record to say that. Wouldn't it be nice if the P20 and P20 Pro are the first flagship and not the last, in fact, start a trend where we can do handheld long exposures without any worrying about stability ever again? <laughs> I, I completely agree. I'm hoping to get my device this week before I go to Dubai next week to put the camera through its testing in low light because the lighting, the architecture, everything becomes a really good subject for that sort of testing of oh, a yeah, camera smartphone. There. Yeah, I mean, basically, I want to see that feature on the Pixel 3 and I want, obviously, to see even better light performance on the Pixel 3. And if they can throw in a, a tele-lens in there to make for a better zoom experience, I'm up for that too. I'm not sure I need to worry about too much about the monochrome sensor. When, you know, in the, in the P10 and Mate 10 Pro, to me, the, the monochrome sensor made sense because it was a uh, higher resolution than the RGB sensor. So it allowed to capture more detail with less noise, combine that with the RGB data, create a much higher resolution, much more detailed photo. Um, but in this case, with the P20 Pro at least, the 40 megapixel RGB sensor has so much information and detail already that 
You know, I'm not quite sure what the monochrome sensor brings to the table other than allowing parallax and, and bouquet and all that other stuff. So I don't know. It'll be really interesting to see what Google does um, with HTC this time for sure, because I don't think there'll be an LG partnership for the, Google, the Pixel 3 this time. Um, what they bring to the table, because that's going to be the attainable goal for the American public, right? That and of course the Galaxy S9 and S9 Plus and the Note 9 and and the, the the iPhone whatever next iPhone. But I have a feeling that unless Apple has a trick up its sleeve and they've been working on similar computational photography stuff, that they are kind of. I mean, I'm sure their next iPhone will take wonderful photos, but I'm not sure that they'll be quite as competitive as they've been in the past. After what I'm seeing here with the P20. Yeah. Do you think that's an indicator of the fact that Apple over the last few years have continued to stay almost alone in their development, end-to-end development of products, both hardware and software, collaborating with third-party companies less? And they, ne- they are now struggling to keep up with the likes of Huawei, Google, Samsung, and others who are collaborating on some elements of their their. For not only uh, smartphone photography, but also other parts of the software. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think what Apple's probably doing is what they've done all along, which is they send their scientists and researchers to the conferences, like SIGGRAPH, where a lot of this stuff is comes from, right? And then they come home to the mothership, literally, since it's called that, <laughs> and uh, and implement that that what they learn there in house, right? But you're right, it lacks the um, benefits of iteration through community, right? Um, That being said, Apple has enough money to hire enough of those scientists, basically, to uh, actually uh, have them build their own little community in-house, right? They they do indeed. So so I'm not sure it's as big of an issue as we think, but, but I have a feeling that, you know... They've been very good on the traditional kind of uh, imaging performance uh, software angle, and I'm, I haven't seen them other than maybe uh, the the lighting effects in the iPhone 10. Um, I haven't, and, and of course Samsung has their own kind of crappier version, uh, but I I, th- I haven't really seen them do um, do anything huge computationally compared to say uh, Google or most recently Huawei. And and even LG and Samsung, they have some AI now in their cameras, but we're not talking about the level of AI we're seeing in in from Google or Huawei here, right? It's not the same league. I mean, don't get me wrong, the Galaxy S9 Plus, which I have, I have a beautiful purple one, is definitely competitive at, at the current market, but I think it's going to get trumped by the P20 and and it's it's... You know, they, they're throwing hardware at it to solve the problem, which is what Samsung always does, it seems, you know? Yes. Um, if they can follow up with slightly better updates to the software, maybe that computational side of the photography can be added at a later date. But I'm and not. that's ho- the magic, right? That's the, what's so amazing about computational photography. It is. That's, that's the great thing. But knowing Samsung's track record with software updates, I'm sadly <laughs> not holding my breath. Uh, yeah. Having said that, uh, the same could be said about Huawei. Uh, there are always very lofty promises of updates from them, but they're not very timely. So, for example, my P9 from a 
few years ago. That still doesn't have uh, an update to Nougat. It's still it a marshmallow. It's very it. it's very sad to see that because that was the big promise of yes, we'll give you regular updates on your your Huawei device and it will get better with time. Sadly, that was that the didn't. second phone from Huawei that caught my attention in imaging. Um, the piece, the the sorry, the Honor Six Plus was the first, as you mentioned, but the P Nine was when I finally got one and played with it was like, I was like, wow, I can totally see just like with Nokia and Zeiss back in the day, how much more detail the sensors were able to capture because of the quality of the lenses. I was, that was the, the first time I saw that again on a phone, uh, post Nokia, you know, getting dissolved as it were, because, the P9's optics, and I mean ever since then, all the all the Leica branded phones from Huawei, the P9 optics were so much better than anything at its in in its you know generation, right? Yes, and the the, the thing is that's where they really introduced the monochrome and RGB Correct, sensor yeah. pairing to to the masses. Also, Leica branding. Um, I think it's more than just branding. Leica must be doing something oh, or giving yeah, yeah. giving Huawei something. Uh, which is making them accelerate their, their mobile photography. And I think what Leica is doing for them is they are validating the results. They're saying, you know, okay, you did all this stuff. Let us, you know, iterate with you and give you feedback. You know, in the same way as, as if you're a car person, you'll know, for example, that in the development of the Acura, sorry, the Honda originally, NSX, in the 90s, Ayrton Senna, the F1 racer, drove the car several times and gave them feedback and they tweaked it based on his input, which, you know, as a, you know, master at driving was a very good feedback and input to get. And I think that's kind of why the, what the relationship with Leica works like is they provide lenses for sure, but they also, you know, provide their expertise in setting all the parameters in the camera to, to take the right shots in the right conditions in the traditional sense of software on a camera, right? And then they look at the results that Huawei gave them and say, you know, tweak this a little bit and tweak that. And then it always, to me, the, the, these phones have felt more like cameras than phones in the way they meter light, in the way they capture things and and i think in the last generation here last year or so with the p20 sorry the the p20 for sure for, of course but the p i'm thinking of the mate 10 pro here more they've started adding this ai factor to it but i don't think that's like bringing that to the table from what steve litchfield said i can't remember the name of the person but they inherited one of the Nokia folks that worked on the PureView um, back in the day, the 41 megapixel sensor. And wow. that person is on the team for the P20. So I think it's a combination of things. You've got Leica on one hand for the optics and the validation of, yes, the end result looked like what you'd expect from a decent camera. And, and then there is, you know, Huawei's own internal, you know, chops as a, you know, really maker of phenomenal hardware. And then you've got this tiny little team of imaging at Huawei that's now acquired this person from Nokia. I mean, that person might have been there for a while. It's just now we're finally seeing the results, right? But it, it's interesting. 
It's, it's one of the interesting things of the industry. There may be some big, well-known brands that come and go, but some of the key people get key learnings as they go and as they move. And sometimes that's what brings, brings some big leaps and changes. Uh, for example, HTC stuff leaving and setting up Nextbit. And then a few years later, we get the, the Razor phone. This is the great thing about that makes us geeks and frequent uh, upgraders of devices very happy. We're seeing the innovation moving at pace, also thanks to the people moving around. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to move more into talking about the Galaxy S9 and S9 Plus in terms of both imaging and in general, uh, because, you know, it, it, I, I talked about the P20 at length last week with my guest and you know, obviously we can talk about it some more, but I want to know, since you got a chance to play with it for more than an hour or two, like I did, um, because, you know, I just had a briefing and I couldn't take the phone anywhere. Um, and can you give us like a, a you know, one minute summary of what you, what you liked and didn't like maybe? Sure. Um, so as everyone's been saying in the media, and I'm sure it's been said on, on the podcast too, this is an iterative update from Samsung. They had a good thing going with the Samsung Galaxy S8. They just iterated on top of that with the S9 and the S9 Plus. So they've made it slightly thicker. The screen's not as curvy, but it's a much more practical device thanks to the fingerprint uh, placement. The back of the device has two cameras, one telephoto lens and one 12 megapixel camera with a very good sensor. Uh, they've tweaked their uh, Samsung uh, software experience. And as far as flagships go, it's a very good device. Now, Absolutely. there's nothing revolutionary. Uh, I would say the one thing that I've seen using... Uh, a pre-production device uh, for about a week is that the battery life's not very good. I know right. it's a pre-production device, but in a flagship of 2018, whilst everyone's making better efficiencies of not only the battery technology, which hasn't changed that much, but the chipset, that Snapdragon 845 um, is a really nice uh, chipset to work with. Sadly, they're not getting that much battery life extra out of it compared to the S8, which in an iterative release I would expect from a company such as Samsung. But overall, really good camera, really good screen. The screen is gorgeous. Oh, the screen, yeah, absolutely. Um, ah. No, I agree with your with your um, you know your verdict. I, I was actually asking you another question oh apologies i i was gonna say we're gonna switch to the s9 and spend some time on it what i wanted was a summary on the p20 because oh, what sorry. i said is i have only spent an hour or two with it you spent a day with it i have a galaxy s9 plus a purple one so i've been playing with that extensively obviously i have more opinions on that what i wanted to is your take maybe on the p20 p20 pro uh, since you spend a little more time than me. Yeah, um, so far, very impressed. Uh, I was really impressed by the battery life. The MUI software in its 8.1 iteration is very improved. It's not perfect, but it's much better than previous versions of MUI, especially if you compare it to the fifth version, MUI 5. The look and feel of it is gorgeous. So uh, Jonathan Morris, who brought his P20 to, to Edinburgh, had the blue version, not the uh -huh. iridescent or uh, phased color uh, 
turquoise and, and purple one. And it's it's a really nice device. It's not as shiny as the Honor 9 uh, in that the way it reflects light, but it, it gives the feel of being well-built whilst not being too flashy. So yeah. I, I would be happy keeping it the, the blue version in a case without having to, to lose out on, on seeing the back. Uh, unlike the Honor 9, or if I had the, the, the turquoise version, um, I would be sad, a bit saddened to have to put it in a case. Uh, one thing that annoyed me just in from the very brief time I was with Jonathan and, and he was using it to take some pictures was how quickly the camera goes into power saving mode. So Huawei do this with the camera. That's true of a lot of Huawei phones, actually. Uh, which I think gives credence to what you were saying about have all the sensors on, taking pictures all the time, and work with that. Because that's going to be a pretty big hit on the battery if you have it on all the time. Indeed, yeah. So that's that's probably just a software setting that can be adjusted. Uh, if not by Huawei's own menu system, there will be some way to, to change that. So, yeah, overall, very, very impressed. But I haven't had enough time with it to be able to make a real assessment on battery life, though Jonathan tells me it's very good. It's on a par with uh, the Mate 10 Pro so far, which is a is a pretty good benchmark for a lot of other phones at the moment. Oh, yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, I was really impressed when I saw the battery size that they were able to cram in these two phones because the P10 was a little disappointing in that way last year. Uh, especially the smaller one. Um, and, and you you know, back to what you're saying with the Galaxy S9, same, my, my take on the battery is the same. It's, uh, I'm not really seeing the improvement considering the, the 845 is supposed to be more power efficient. Uh, it's not bad, but it's not great. Um, my, my gripe with the P20 in my brief time is the fingerprint sensor in the front. And, and it's not just the placement, which I don't like, this is a matter of taste, although I think most tech journalists seem to like the fingerprint back, uh, readers in the back, uh, like I do, uh, from, you know, empirical sampling that I've done. Uh, but my biggest gripe is that you have this really modern design on top with the notch, and then on the bottom you have this really traditional, old-fashioned almost design. It looks like a Galaxy S7, the bottom half, basically. Um <laughs> You know, and, and this chin, first of all, why is there a chin there? Why not? doesn't display go all the way to the edge? And then you've got a fingerprint reader that's also a home button, that's also a capacitive, um, you, know, you know, what is it called? The gesture sensor. It's just, why? Like, why not put it in the back where it belongs? It wouldn't have made the back uglier. It's already really pretty. And you would have a front that would look contemporary and modern. And I know the notch is very controversial, but, uh, you know, to me, it's a lot less controversial on the P20 because, and, and I want to add particularly on the P20 Pro because of the OLED, you can turn off the notch basically, but it's still on, but it's off. You know what I'm saying? It's basically reverses it from white tech, uh, black text on white to white text on black. And at that point, you know, it acts like a, part of a of, of a you know like a, what's it called a matting that that makes it go away but it's still there use, showing useful information like signal strength and time and to me that's brilliant i think all phones with notches should do that and if they did we wouldn't hate the notch as much i i completely agree though i will fight uh, the the corner of the fingerprint scanner on the front uh, for the last year year and few months i've been using a blackberry key one and oh, i it's really a great phone 
I really enjoy the fingerprint in the space bar at the front. I've become accustomed to unlocking my phone that way and using gestures with the with the keyboards in the case of the key one, but with the honor view 10, I think that's the exception though. You know, I feel, I feel like the key one should have it in the space bar. It's, it's, it's right for that. But with the honor view 10, you have exactly the same sort of bezel-less design. There's no notch in the view 10, but there's a front face, front mounted fingerprint scanner, which also supports gestures. I've trained myself probably because I, I was wanting to. I've trained myself to switch off the soft uh, navigation buttons in Android as you can in MUI and mm-hmm. use the fingerprint scanner for navigation, for back gestures, for multitasking, for a uh, home button. It works. It's a good solution and not everyone is of the same opinion in, in fingerprint scanners on the back. I am in the opinion that on some devices it works better. On the Pixel 2 XL, for example, it makes sense to have the fingerprint scanner on the back. But with the, because you have this, the speakers there, but I would say that until you've been using the device for at least a week or two, with that on, you don't see the value of it. I just force myself to do it just to have a better understanding of how users are using that. And I think it's it's a subjective thing. Uh, some people oh, prefer it on the front, no. some people on the back. Totally. It, it's it's subjective, for sure. But I think in, in Huawei's current setup, especially as it's all in the one glass panel at the front, that fingerprint scanner on the front makes sense in the P20 and P20 Pro. It's also, uh, I think, a market thing. Apple are a big enough company where they can retrain their users, especially with the iPhone X or iPhone 10, however you prefer to call it. Uh, they're big enough to be able to train the users, to tell the users how to use their phones. Uh, whereas Huawei are still at that position where they're gaining users. A lot of people are switching over from Apple or Samsung. So they want to give them something familiar where they won't feel too lost in doing it. So the users who are currently upgrading from a Samsung Galaxy S7 Edge or S7 will be more comfortable with a Huawei P20 Pro, which has the fingerprint scanner where it's where they're used to it. Yeah, no, I see your point. I think you make some very valid arguments there. My perspective is slightly different. I feel that, um, and again, it's, it's just a matter of opinion, but I think that I, Apple's done the right thing with the iPhone 10. I think that gestures, the way they implemented them, are brilliant. And and a lot of it was stolen from the Palm Pre, which was brilliant in terms of gestures. <laughs> and and I, I and uh, OnePlus is doing it. They have a gesture mode uh, on the 5T, which uh, lets you swipe from the bottom like that in this to get to the home button. Exactly the same thing. All I'm trying to say is you don't need a fingerprint sensor at the bottom of the screen to get gestures on a phone. And in fact, Apple is the example to follow here. And I believe that um, I've used iPhones for years uh, as secondary devices, and I have always hated the home button. And I feel that that the iPhone X solves this problem in a brilliant way, and it's so super intuitive. Once you start using it, you learn it in less than a few hours. It doesn't even take a day to get used to it. And when I go back to an old iPhone, I get so frustrated. I go back to an iPad, I get so frustrated because there's a home button. Um, they could implement the gestures on the old phones. There's no reason they can't. Um, 
So to me, that's, and, and, and OnePlus is doing that. What Android makers need to do is, I'm, I'm not against having a choice to ha either have the, 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 the Android navigation keys and software at the bottom like they are today on most phones, like the Pixel, uh, but I'm also not against me you being able to turn them off and replace them with gestures similar to what Apple did. But I don't think you need a fingerprint sensor for that. And my argument is that it's better to have it in the back simply because very rarely do you need to unlock your phone when it's flat on a surface because usually you just first first you first instincts to pick up the phone so you can look at it better and so you don't need to have the fingerprint reader in the front secondly the and this is the killer app for me for the fingerprint reader in the back is that as you reach in your pocket to grab your phone you naturally locate the fingerprint reader in the back with your index and by the time you have the phone in your hand in front of your face it's unlocked because it's unlocked basically as you pull it out of your pocket and with really fast fingerprint readers like the one in the Mate 10 Pro, um, it's un probably unlocked in your pocket before you even start moving your phone out of your pocket. So it's one less step. Like if you're holding the phone naturally with your finger index finger halfway in the back, you have to reach with your thumb down to the bottom to unlock it. It's really, really cumbersome. And when you use the phones like the iPhone 10 that do face ID and don't even have a fingerprint reader that you just look at and they unlock, you want that instantaneous gratification. And I think that's where the fingerprint reader in the back wins. And they have that going with the P9 and they did it with all the mates. <laughs> and for some reason, the P10 last year, that, that was the, the most boring industrial design that Huawei's done in years, looked just like an iPhone. And they put the thing back in the front. And you're, you're right, it's probably to attract switchers. But man, I do not like it. And I think in this generation where we're th all thriving, like the Mi Mix 2S showed us last week, to go completely bezel-less and completely notchless, this is a step backwards. So, so Miriam, have Huawei made the perfect phone for you in terms of not only branding, but also fingerprints placement and cameras yes, in the have. Mate RS? They have. Thanks for bringing that up. We talked about it briefly with John Renninger last week, but the Mate RS, if I could afford it, in fact, I'm going to ask them for a review in it. I don't think I'll get one because I'm definitely not the intended market and it's a really expensive device. But I would love to have a red one and flash it with the international ROM so I could have Google Play services because that would be an incredible phone because it has all the things I want. It doesn't have a notch, no fingerprint reader in the front that's taking up space. It has one under the display, I'm aware. And that's kind of interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I honestly find the back of the mate, sorry, the, the Mate RS a little boring compared to the back of the P20 Pro because the P20 Pro, especially the twilight color, which is what I want. Uh, I love the landscape orientation of the writing on it. You know, the Huawei brand and the Leica yes. brand. I th I f it feels so modern to me, whereas the Porsche design, honestly, the Porsche design aesthetic has always been very staid to me. I I've always felt it was a little boring, kind of a little too Bauhaus German. You know what I'm saying? And yet, you know, it's basically the front of the P20 and P20 Pro that vex me. The rear, I find, is absolutely brilliant. But the front feels frumpy and unfinished to me. Ooh, yeah. fr 
frumpy. That, frumpy. That is, so so notchy not notchy face is frumpy. Yes. Well, the, the notch I actually find modern. The the top half is fine. It's you know especially when you set the notch and software to kind of be high, hidden, but the bottom half. Oh my god! Every time I see that phone, bottom half, I'm like front. I'm like, why? It feels so backwards, so antiquated. And I agree with you. The gestures are the way to go. But why not just have them directly on the screen? Like just swipe from the top, from the bottom up, and you get the home button. And you know, swipe left on the bottom edge and you get the the back button. Swipe maybe right and you get the recent apps. I don't know. It, it could be done. Yeah. Or swipe halfway up like on the iPhone, you get the recent apps. It it definitely can be done. Uh, just as you were mentioning that mentioning the the WebOS Palm Pre earlier, I, I pulled my Palm Pre two out <laughs> of the door and shed a few tears. Uh, I know it it was truly ahead of its time, both in terms of user interfaces, but also in terms of the idea of progressive web apps and how smartphones were going to go in general. You know, I have it, a Palm Pre three, right? <gasps> oh my! You Dude. you you are you are a lucky person. Yes, I do have one, um, and I use it for a while, and it was delightful. It was the last. It was the final hooray. Yes, it it, it, it it truly was. I tried getting one, but they just weren't available in the UK, and they took that whole paradigm of gestures are your way around your smartphone with a qwerty physical qwerty keyboard to the. I think it's pinnacle. I agree. I agree. It was a brilliant machine. The only thing it was missing, it was a cusp time for LTE in the US in the sense that about half the flagships were starting to feature LTE and it does not have it. Um, it still works great um, in US on US networks. Uh, it was a mine is an actual AT&T model with an AT&T box. So it's locked, sadly, but it works great on AT&T still today because uh, HSPA plus support still works here on the same bands as before. So wow. if you ever are in San Francisco, I know we've missed each other a few times because of travel and schedules, but next time you're in town, you're welcome to borrow it for a day <gasps> or two. Thank you. Just don't I, drop it because it I, would be sad. I, I will, <laughs> I will see if any of my suppliers at, on AliExpress can find a, or, or make a mocodile case for the, for the Palm Pre 3. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'll, I'll, you're, you're happy. You're welcome to borrow it. And, um, you know, if you even need an AT&T SIM, I can, I can connect you with that as well. Um, well, it will be fun. It'll be fun. Uh, this is one of the few that I've kept. I, I regret a lot, not, you know, I've got a lot of phones I did not keep that I regret not keeping over the years. This is not one of them because I did keep it. Um, yeah. Yeah, Pam, Pam were sadly uh, in the, during the final hurrah were part of HP who decided to that phones weren't for them. At the time, it, it, it was. I sad. knew when they got acquired that it was it was going to go downhill rapidly, um, just because of how HP operates. But um, so yeah, I, I haven't talked much about the Galaxy S nine Plus on the show yet because I've had it, but I've been so busy I really haven't had a chance to really dig in. It's in my pocket, I use it, I like it, but I haven't gone like for a photo walk with it yet. Like I still need to do that. So I want you listeners to stay tuned. I promise you, I will give you my verdict on this phone 
uh, everything that Matteo said about the S9, at least I have the plus, is true. Battery life is an issue. Display is gorgeous. Camera is good. Uh, everything else is pretty good. The software is good. It's very iterative, but you can't go wrong when you iterate on something as good as a Galaxy S8. So, you know, it'll be interesting yeah. to see what happens with the Note 9 now that I think Huawei has really pushed the envelope significantly forward in terms of imaging. Um, and, you know, um, variable aperture. So let's talk about, since we're talking about imaging, I want to go through the news. We have about 15 minutes left or so, maybe even 20 if we push it a bit. Um, let's talk about, since we talk about imaging, this rumor of the Nokia 9. Have you seen that article? Have you read it? Are you referring to the Pocket Now article? Correct. Yes. So um, this is Nokia's new flagship. So one up from the 8 Sirocco that we saw at MWC. Yeah, it is a rumor at this point, but it's a leak, I should say. This It looks like it might be happening. I hope it's not an April Fool's joke that came out on April 2nd. Um, but it looks like we're going to get a triple camera phone version two with this device and in a very similar way but quite different yes very different uh in as we were talking about earlier where huawei have teamed up with leica to improve their uh, camera phones uh, nokia have revived their their uh, zeiss partnership which brought us the original pure view back in the day um so yes it, this looks as if it has uh 41 megapixel shooter is that correct miriam yeah so the main rgb shooter is 41 megapixels uh pure view basically re reborn like the one on the 1020 before it lumia 1020 and the 808 pure view uh with ois and then there is what's interesting to me is that the rumor says anyway that there is a 20 megapixel um tele uh lens and a 9.7 or well let's say 9 megapixel uh, monochrome so the reverse essentially in terms of megapixel count from the p20 pro which has the 20 megapixel monochrome and an 8 megapixel tele that's um, really, really interesting yeah, I, I would love weird. to know love to know how the higher resolution telephoto lens really helps with the photography bit. It could also be the other way around. Like it could just be a, a mistake. Uh, the, what that's really exciting to me is the main sensor, the 41 megapixel sensor has a variable aperture similar to what we've seen on the Galaxy S9. F01.5 and F02.4 are the two settings. Yeah. And so, wow, right? And Xenon Flash, um, which as you know, in um, low light is the best way to capture motion um, if you want to, you know, freeze it in the midair, basically. Uh, LEDs are just not quite fast enough for that. Uh, you need Xenon. Uh, and of course, this would be the first phone from Nokia with a Snapdragon 845. Um, there would be, there's no information on the f-stop of the, the telephoto or the, the zoom level of the telephoto or the f-stop of the monochrome sensor and then the front camera would be a 21 megapixel f of 1.8 probably very similar to the 20 megapixel sensors we saw on the lumias in the past the the rear sensors on the phones like the 920 925 um icon 930 etc 
That's my guess. Yeah. It, it's, it sounds really, really interesting. Obviously, it's a rumor at the moment. I'm not getting my hopes too high because I've been disappointed in the past. But Nokia or HMD, as the company is now, are doing some really cool stuff. They've, especially in Europe and Asia, they've been selling a lot of devices and in a sh relatively short period of time. Nokia wasn't really around before MWC in 2017, and they're back and they're taking market shares from some of the bigger, more established brands at the moment. Indeed. It, I mean, I'm very excited about what I saw last year and this year at MWC from Nokia. Uh, I haven't had any of the devices other than a 3310, and I'm certainly looking forward to getting an 8110, but I mostly am really looking forward to getting the 7 Plus. Yes, the, that 7 Plus looks like a Pixel 2 XL Mini or uh, an yep. affordable version of the Pixel 2 XL. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And I mean, the Scirocco is really interesting, but and then, you know, I'm even more interested in this, obviously, rumored Nokia 9. So, you know, this might not be the last hooray in imaging this year, folks. This is what I'm <laughs> super excited about. It keeps getting better, Matteo. It does. And for people like you and I, this is a fantastic time to be alive and to be in the tech industry. This is heaven. Um, let's, let's also talk about, we, we've mentioned Leica and Zeiss. Mm -hmm. um, in a world where the average consumer isn't buying cameras anymore because their phones are good enough, do you think the big camera brands will start moving to more partnerships? So we've just mentioned two. Uh, who would you pair with which uh, smartphone manufacturer? <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, play this game. Interesting. Well, everybody's paired with Sony, at least not a f not with a brand on the back, because Sony makes most of the sensors these days for most of the cameras. True, It'd but Samsung also, ma also makes most of the screens. True. It'd be interesting to see um, LG and Sony or... Sony come back uh, with a Cybershot branded phone. Oh, wow. Or Sony and Google. Um, mm. But Sony is definitely up there. I don't see Can Canon and Nikon being in the game, but I could be wrong. They have been so resistant to change, these two traditional camera makers. They make phenomenal, phenomenal, yeah. They make great cameras and lenses. Uh, especially their DSLRs, but they just don't seem to scale it down um, or want to scale it down in price and performance. Uh, Sony's the only one doing it. They have the RX100 line, which is in its fifth generation, I think, or sixth now, and has been phenomenal since day one. And, you know, they have the NEX line, which is now called Alpha, which is APS-C uh, mirrorless cameras that are absolutely amazing and then of course don't forget the alpha 7 line which is full frame mirrorless and to me if if i were to buy a camera and spend 10 to 20 grand on lenses and a body right now i would get an alpha 7 wow. there's absolutely no doubt in my mind even though i've shot nikon and canon for years at the very very high level of dslr when i was at engadget uh you know we had nikon d7s's and D800s and 820s and you know we had Canon uh, 
5D Mark everything, <laughs> more, more, I think <laughs> from two to four at least, uh, and, and matching lenses. And, and it was a delight to shoot with these Nikon and Canon devices. But I, I feel that I haven't really shot with an Alpha 7 or I've played with it briefly, but I have a feeling that this is the perfect, this is the perfect storm. Like to me, I like my cameras to be compact, yet completely feature packed. And the Alpha 7 is, is, you know, in its many iterations and variants is that camera. Um, and it's starting to have an incredible lens ecosystem. So Sony is the one who's, to me, has the entire gamut. They make cell phone camera sensors. They make a great point-and-shoot camera line. They make a great interchangeable lens mirrorless camera line and a great super high-end, even the their DSLR, the uh, Alpha 9 line. Uh, I mean... You can't go wrong there, but I don't feel like, you know, Canon and Nikon, every time they've done an interchangeable lens camera that's uh, mirrorless, it's been kind of meh, right? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a strange thing that uh, obviously they're very focused on the high end. They almost ignore the, the low end and the point and shoot cameras are pretty much gone from, from the market because smartphones have got so good. Uh, how about modular solutions to camera phones? So, do you remember Hasselblad with the Moto Z, Z yeah, and I Moto mean, Z Play uh, friend or uh, yeah, uh, mod, mod mod? Yeah, I think. Look, I think um, it, you know Hasselblad is certainly up for, ripe for being partnered with someone there. But I felt that partnership was fell very short, both <laughs> in terms of um, the result, like regardless of the branding the the mod was basically just your cheapest generic point and shoot camera engine in a mod right yeah um and the software was tweaked a little bit by Hasselblad but nothing really too exciting and then the branding was completely weird because considering the performance of it uh it was kind of egregious to have Hasselblad branding on it considering you if you know what they do yeah um but but I think they're ripe for the picking because Leica, like Leica and Zeiss, they're known for their lenses. Um, but the other one I think would be interesting is Fuji. Because Fuji, personally, I feel, is the only other player other than, uh, and I should say Panasonic as well, uh, who has a partnership with Leica. But but I think the those those two, Fuji, Panasonic... Um, are probably and and maybe to some extent Pentax are are probably the only ones that still make some really good non DSLR cameras. Like I have a the X series from Fuji, right? I have an X thirty, which is kind of the end in the entry level ish of the X series, and it's phenomenal. It's absolutely amazing. It has a smaller sensor than my Sony NEX. It's it's smaller than the APS-C. It's it's smaller than micro four thirds even. And and it's amazing the photos I take with that thing. And it's so analog. Like all the controls are manual. Everything can be tweaked at my fingertips. There's like dials everywhere. And it feels so bulletproof and unbreakable and solid. Like I can take somebody out if I swing that at somebody, you know? And it's it's a it's a not a very expensive camera. It's a six hundred dollar camera, five hundred dollar camera, right? And I'm like, that's you know, that's another brand that's I think ripe for the picking for a partnership. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a, a confession here. I haven't used a proper camera or a camera since 2014. Smartphone cameras have been <laughs> good enough for me. I agree uh, so with I, you. <laughs> so I'm 
I'm definitely no camera expert, but my colleague and friend, Lucas Suliga, he is, on the other hand, so he's a Panasonic Leica man, and uh, he's really good with his camera stuff. Uh, but he's the chief aperture officer at Tech Travel Geek, so it's, I would leave the camera <laughs> conversation to him. Chief aperture officer. I love it. Um, well, you know, I think the, the bottom line is I'm using my cameras less and less. I don't have that many, thankfully, so it's okay. I've got the, a Sony NEX, an old one, and I have my Fujifilm X30. And then, thankfully, I never had to buy any of the really fancy cameras I use at Engadget. But it's, it was nice to use them because I learned, you know, so much. And also, it gave me an exp a level of expectation as to what a really high-end camera can do. Um, and that's good, you know, get lesson to learn to try to apply to mobile, right? Um, but yeah. Yes. But as I said, I used to be a Panasonic uh, Leica man myself. But since 2014, I haven't had the need to do that. Right. So... Uh, we'll see what happens in the coming coming months and years. Sure. So let's uh, go. We talked, you know, briefly about how the Nokia Seven Plus looks like a a, a, a cheaper Pixel. There is rumors of a mid range Pixel um, coming in the summer potentially for certain markets like India. Uh, this is again a lot of the news you're going to hear in the rest of this podcast is all rumors and leaks. So just just be aware that none of this is etched in stone. Um, but um, I'm not quite sure what to make of this one. What's your thought on this, uh, Matteo? Um, it makes sense. So Google are a growing company. Uh, in, in a certain sense, with Android, they've run out of space to grow in many markets. And the next big frontier for them, apart from Africa, is definitely within Asia, India. The Indian market is enormous. They're yeah. starting to have some very good... Uh, network infrastructure compared to a few years ago so yeah, yeah. it's ready it's ready to go and through partnerships with networks they originally launched android one there we i, I look at it as google running an experiment to see how this would work out and now that they're working on this rumored lo low-end or mid-range pixel it makes complete sense for the Indian market because the market is traditionally price sensitive. But more importantly, uh, India puts some very heavy imports duties on electronics. So companies like HTC, Samsung, uh, Xiaomi, they assemble their devices in India in a factory there, which gives work to local people. But more importantly, it avoids adding to the cost of the devices for consumers. So companies like Oppo, for example, uh, Oppo, Xiaomi, Samsung, and HTC all had plants there. By acquiring uh, HTC's 2,000 employees and their smartphone know-how, Google are already in a good place to do that in, in India. And we don't know much in terms of specifications, but it makes sense for Google to do that. Whether that will be under the Pixel brand or it will be a Google-blessed Android One device, even more blessed than the Nokias that are <laughs> That's doing hard very well. to do, Matteo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like Nokia is like super, super tight friends having a very, very special, uh, you know, friends with benefits relationship right now with Nokia, you know? It, it, they, they definitely do. But then again, Google do used to say the same about the open handset alliance saying everyone was was blessed yeah, by yeah but this is this is clearly a little a friendly fun little affair that's going on and it makes me smile nokia and google sitting in a tree 
Yes, considering they were what the the turkeys under Microsoft. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, I want to quickly shift gears because I want to talk about this Apple news really quick. And we have very little time left, but I want to quickly go through very, very briefly the Motorola announcements. There's leaks and, and more leaks of the G6, G6 Play um, and uh, the Z3 Play, which... Uh, have, have appeared. I'll, I'll put links of all the stuff we've talked about as usual in the podcast notes and description. But um, I wanted to point out that the uh, Z3 Play, uh, I'm a little interested in that because it's the, the Z Play series of the Z lineup with mods has always been my favorite because I feel like they are just better big than the flagship Zs. Um, so I'm interested in this Z Play Z3 Play leaks. It looks like the front is finally a six, uh, an 189 display, you know, that with very little bezels, tops and bottom. And because of that, and because they can't put a fingerprint reader in the back, they've uh, we we thought they might put it under the display, but they put it on. It looks like it's on the side of the phone. That makes sense because right? Sony have been doing that for a while. Meizu and recently Nexpit started did it, and Razer does yeah. it. Uh, but I think all that's exactly what would have been my 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 instinct as well if they couldn't get away with doing the in-display fingerprint reader, which, as we know, is still very expensive and iffy. Um, it makes sense that the Z3 Play would have it on the side of the phone somehow. But I'm excited about this phone because the Z3 Play, the Z Play series, um, the, the kind of mid-range Z, has always been my little darling. The bad news, though, it looks like there's no 3.5 millimeter headphone jack anymore on this phone. And the Z flagships never had it, but the Z Play did. So... Uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt because it's a leak. But did you like the Z phones? Did you play with them? I did, yes. Uh, the first generation Z, I was a bit disappointed by the battery life, but the Z2 or Z2 was a lovely, lovely device. Yeah. Um, well, both the Z the Z Play and the Z2 Play had great battery life. It was the flagships that were, the original flagship was a little iffy. Um, yes. But the, the newer one is a little better for sure, yeah. But I have to say it, I am a, a shallow person, and the thinness of that Z2, oh. the, the, the flagship, to me was very, very reminiscent of a Samsung phone from 2008 I had, the, yeah. the really, really slim one. It just felt so slim. It felt special. It really did. But you're, you're right. The, the, the Z series, the Play uh, devices, are definitely the ones which are aimed at uh, the average consumer, and the battery life they delivered was very, very good. They were always the the ones that were usable, but also had good battery life, which is, is becoming a bit of a rarity. Yeah, for sure. The next uh, leaks are the Moto's G6 and G6 Play. Um, evolution of the G5, which was a really good phone last year. It looks like they're going, maybe not 18.9, but they're definitely going more display, less bezel. Um, and uh, it looks like uh, the industrial design is more in line with the Moto X4 from this past summer. Uh, I'm not sure if it's actually glass on the G6s, but it looks like the same kind of industrial design with the round camera pod and the kind of like... Uh, waterfall glass edges on the sides. 
Um, and it could be plastic and not glass. I don't know. But because it's a G series, it's probably pretty affordable. The, the G6 has a fingerprint reader and dual camera. The G6 Play has no fingerprint reader and a single camera on the back. Other than that, they look very identical uh, with a lot less bezel and uh, still have a bit of a chin because obviously one of them has a fingerprint reader down there. Yeah. Um, shout, shout out, if if the rumors and leaks are true, shout out to the front-facing flash to make yes. everyone look startled. And you know, but that's at, been on so many motos for so long that it's surprising to me that others are doing it, you know? I, I think it's mainly because uh, Motorola are now par fully part of Lenovo, also referred to as Lenovo Rola. Um, Lenovo this is a Rola. big... <laughs> <laughs> nice. This is this is, a, this is definitely a Lenovo feature that they've had for much longer in Asia, and they they have the components. The economies of scale are there. It makes it's it it makes up for the lower quality sensor that is usually in the G series devices, especially in the selfie camera. So they've solved a, a problem with a very simple engineering solution. Indeed. All right. We have like two minutes, literally, to speak about the Apple Intel thing, which is really not enough. But I want to get your take on it. The rumor is this. Apple is going to drop Intel chips for their laptops, their MacBooks, starting 2020, which is very soon as if you think about it, they're probably working on this right now. And, you know, uh, as a background, Apple makes their own designs they don't manufacture they design their own chips for all the iphones and ipads right now and uh arm based and um samsung manufactures them and this would be a major coup because intel would uh you know lose a major brand um of course mac os can be made to run on arm that's there's no doubt about that we know that uh mac os and ios are very similar <laughs> at their core and it runs just fine on 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 ARM, in fact, the iPhone 10 is super fast, um, running uh, iOS benchmark-wise. So, what do you think? Is this? Do you think this is going to happen? Number one and number two, what's what's that going to mean for Intel? Um, I, I completely agree. So, yes, uh, this is going to happen. Uh, most likely 2020 onwards, uh, as you mentioned, is something that's been coming. We've seen experiments of this type for, for a while. So Windows is already ready to run on ARM. Uh, so we're in the non-Apple ecosystem, this is happening. Google yeah. have been making Chromebooks running on ARM, rock chip chipsets, ARM chipsets. There's uh, very large rumors of Snapdragon 835 or 845 powered Microsoft laptops coming later this year, or Microsoft powered laptops. And so, as an aside, Microsoft has been super supportive of the Snap Windows 10 on Snapdragon effort from Qualcomm. They have indeed. So I'm sure that there is some credence to these rumors. Then again, if you look at the key markets that uh, Apple caters to with, uh, with their uh, MacBook lines and the the Mac Pro, it is professionals to a certain extent. And they do need those x86 chipsets and they do need a certain type of instruction set for doing things like compiling code, editing video. Now, obviously we're considering a traditional computing paradigm, but then again, if uh, that those tasks can be done in the cloud thanks to reasonable uh, network connectivity, there's no reason to have uh, an Intel chipset in a device. If you're going to be uploading your videos to the co to the cloud and editing them on a server somewhere else, whether that's AWS, Microsoft Azure, or the Google Cloud, 
Indeed. What do you think about that? No, absolutely. I've been doing this for years. When I was a developer and um, I would always keep a, a machine running uh, so that I can connect my Mac to it, uh, running Windows. Uh, so I and, and connected via, uh, well, at first it used to be NFS shares, but eventually I switched over to Google Drive and, and Dropbox. But basically I would be able to work on a Mac um, on uh, and, and, and code in basically on, for, for for windows remotely anywhere anytime um i did this you know 10 years ago so i i think you're absolutely on the money and i think the other thing to keep in mind here is you can emulate you know if these arm chips get fast enough you'll be able to emulate intel stuff um yeah somewhat i mean at least you can try it uh until you get home and run it on a real intel box as it were but i, I also do believe that that's all going away you know i mean other than developers, you know, all the other professions that are professionals that use MacBook Pros today, all these binaries are going to re get recompiled to run on ARM. And if it runs fast enough and renders video and edits photos fast enough, those creative pros are going to, they're not going to care what the architecture of their computer is. Exactly. And Apple have moved successfully moved into the consumer market, at least in mature markets like uh, Western Europe and the US, where it's more of a lifestyle brand. Exactly. People use their Macs much in the same way as users use their Chromebooks. It's a web browser. It's an access to the web, but they're not using the full power of that Intel chipset. So it makes sense for Apple to do uh, an A12 powered chipset uh, backbook. With yeah. amazing battery I've life. been saying it for years. I want my MacBook 12-inch to be ARM-based for the battery life, for the thinness, the, the, the weight, the, you know, uh, always connected aspect. Um, and this would be the holy grail for me because I, I rarely use my MacBook for really heavy lifting. I certainly don't develop on it as a journalist much. I have a nice big Intel uh, iMac for that if I want to. So... Yeah, I think it's feasible. And it doesn't preclude that. It doesn't mean they would drop ARM on every MacBook. It, they might keep the pros with Intel for a while, right? Who knows? Maybe this is the true MacBook Air, affordable MacBook Air of 2020. Correct. Exactly. On that note, I know we could go on, but we're way over time. Um, I want you to plug yourself, Matteo. Tell people where they can find you online, your Twitter handle, your website, all that good stuff. Well, thanks for that. So my Twitter handle is at Todoleo, uh, Tango Oscar, Delta Oscar, Lima Echo Oscar. And I write for uh, techtravelgeeks.com. It's a new site I'm setting up with my colleague and friend, Lucas Suliga. And I also run the podcast on, and contribute to coolsmartphone.com. So those are the main places to follow me. I'm also on Instagram. I tend to tag all my pictures with uh, the camera I'm using just to make sure that me you too. get an idea. Yeah. It, I think that's really good. It preemptively avoids everyone saying, what did you take that picture with? <laughs> exactly. So yeah, follow, follow me on social media. I, I love interacting with people and having conversations on Twitter. So get in touch. How about you, Miriam? 
Oh, well, you guys know where to find me. I'm at Tankgirl. That's T-N-K-G-R-L on Twitter and Instagram. That's like uh, Tankgirl, the comic book character without the vowels. Uh, that's how you'll remember. Um, you can also find me on YouTube, youtube.com slash Miriam Joire with a Y, as you know. Uh, that will sh- bring you some videos of the devices we just talked about. I do unboxings, I do hands-ons, I do reviews. Um, a compliment to the podcast. Obviously, the podcast lives at mobiletechpodcast.com and is co-produced with a World Podcasts, and I want to thank them for that. Um, do subscribe to my podcast. Uh, we're also on iTunes and Pocket Casts. Do subscribe to the YouTube channel, like the videos, all that good stuff. Promote, tell your friends, etc., etc. And this podcast would not be complete without the help of Audible.com, our sponsor. Audible.com is the destination for audiobooks. Matteo, do you listen to audiobooks? I do. I've been an Audible subscriber since 2008. Magical. And I l- love the service. It's available in the UK as well. It's great. There you go. So go check out Audible. Um, the link to try it out and support the podcast is audibletrial.com slash mobile tech. That's audibletrial.com slash mobile tech. Thanks again to Audible for being the sponsor. Thanks, Matteo, for being on the show. I hope you come again sometime. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure to be on this. Wonderful. Stay tuned for another show next week. Bye, everybody. This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.